Good to see your face. Good to see you too. It's been too long since I've seen you. I feel like we've talked a couple of times, but I haven't seen you in years. I know. You're clearly, you've clearly been to the gym and I have not. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for noticing. That's all the reason I do it. That's, that's so the, the only reason why you want to be seen. This is, Richard, <laughs> the other thing we should talk about is I feel like admit, everybody has a midlife crisis. It's like, yep. what color is your parachute? You don't get to decide yeah. what kind of midlife crisis you have. You just wake up and one day you've had some kind of midlife crisis. Mine is a mustache and going yes. to the gym too much. So I feel like all related parties came out okay. Like it wasn't, I got a sports car. It wasn't, I started right. making insane lifestyle decisions. Like yeah. if yeah. you just overcompensated at the gym for my dawning realization of my mortality and I grew a mustache. I mean, honestly, we should have a midlife crisis more often if that's the case. Right, right. Like I think it, it worked out okay for all yeah. parties. Yeah, yeah. I'm and, yet to get my sports car, so I, I'm, I guess I'm on the safe side of that. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's when you know. When you walk out and you see the sports car, you're like, oh, no. <laughs> so we're going to talk about – well, let me ask you, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I am I am going through having dropped off our oldest at college and feeling this very – unfamiliar feeling of I can't do anything like he's helplessness. You know, helplessness. Like it's reminds me of when he was an infant and he would be sick. Yeah. He's like, I will run through a wall. I just don't know which wall to run through. Like that kind yeah. of impotent kind of sometimes when it's like, I just can't do anything. So, you know, he's getting into school and he's, you know, getting on board and it's a whole transition and it's just kind of, Thrilling and terrifying in equal parts, being stuck here five hours away while he's up by you in Boston, you know, starting this well, chat. Send him my, my, my number. Okay. If he ever runs into a problem. I appreciate that. I'll drive over and see if I can help out. I appreciate that. Lift him How up out of the gutter. Yeah, right? Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, I'm experiencing a bit of like post wonderful trip depression. <laughs> That's a phenomenal. Like, yeah. Um, kind of like a hangover. Like, yeah. I just spent a week with my best friends in a beautiful place doing the, all the things that we want to do. Mm -hmm. And um, and then you're back and you're just, you know, it's just like, oh, why can't we do that every day? I just I just miss good people and I miss having them around. Right. You know, it's kind of like almost like a sense of loneliness. Um, yeah. You just, you know, like, where are, you know, where are those guys? And, yeah. Things and yeah, so we just um, we just started thinking about what we're going to do. The, the text bubble has started to appear again with like, "Hey, when's the next one doing?" So That's yeah, I'm awesome. feeling a little, I'm feeling a, a quite buoyant about you know where we go from here. But um, trying to trying to absorb all of it and be grateful, but yeah. at the same time, you know, like I don't want to sound like one of those like you know self help experts who like be grateful for everything. I'm like. I'd rather be there than here right now. Yes. No, you don't, have to, you don't have to explain that away. That's the, yeah. you know, starting to look at Zillow on the last day of vacation. Like, what if we just lived here? Like, that is a very mm -hmm. normal, I think, human response to having a good time. It's, you know, nobody's yeah. dying for the good time to end. So that's why I think, like, everybody had a head cold when they came back from South by Southwest because they had such a good time. And they were, like, an immune system crashed because they were sad they weren't there anymore. Yeah. And everybody yeah. got head cold for, like, the next oh, week. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, it reminds me that there's, I think, two or three people on the on the, on the thread that have COVID right now. So, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, 
think it is. Yeah. It tracks. It tracks. Much fun. Now I'm too sad. My immunity's down. Caught something. Like it's just like it just happened. <laughs> yep. Oh my goodness. Okay, so we're going to talk about um, some work-related stuff yep. today, and something that's been on my mind is this idea that a friend of mine put into my head some years ago when he asked the question is, do we actually know how to work with each other? And so the thesis that has been buzzing around in my head is, I'm not sure that people know how to work with each other. Mm -hmm. um, again, it's a thesis. There may be really good examples of people working well together, but in my life and in the work that I do, I'm interacting with hundreds of people around the work mm -hmm. text. And I just don't see a lot of evidence that people are working together well. And it, it, it becomes very acute when we are looking at handoffs. So when one group of people, one individual who's got a particular domain expertise is working with another individual or another group of individuals mm. with a set of expertise, let's be honest, it's like designers, engineers, product people, engineers, marketing, sales. I mean, you, you pick your, you know, yin and yang, if you will. And what we notice is that when there's a handoff, then there's suddenly a, a dysfunction, mm -hmm. right? And, and you and I have often seen this when it comes to us playing the role of business development person or salesperson mm -hmm. who is mm -hmm. receiving the opportunity into an agency environment or work environment. And when I was working at um, a larger product company, it's, are we going to make this big sale with this enterprise company? Mm -hmm. And then it's, oh, I've got to incorporate all these other people. Mm -hmm. And those handoffs become highly contentious, mm -hmm. almost every environment. Mm -hmm. And so what we've discussed in the past is, is there a way to make them less contentious? And what are the um, healthcare factors that we can play with? So instead of it treating the symptoms and maybe arguing about after-the-fact issues, are there some precursors and some work that we can do in order to reduce that friction and reduce those dysfunctions right. before they even happen. Yep. And I think that's where you and I get really excited is we see opportunities to, let, let's use that healthcare thing. If we are eating the right thing, there's less likely we're going to get sick, right. Right? right? Instead of, oh my God, you're sick. What you need is this pharmaceutical. Right. Right. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's preventative medicine as opposed to after the fact, right? It's, it's, That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, thank you. But I think, you know, when you, when you say it that way, it, and, I, and I am not super versed in this, so forgive me for getting some of the details wrong. But in a positive way, I think some, an environment where this is done the right way, I'm reminded of, I think it was the, was it the English cycling team? Where they started yeah. to like move their beds around with them so they could like sleep yes. in their own bed every night. Like yeah. so just as like a little snapshotty example, right? So just to, to unpack this one level further, because I know that you know the story, but the story generally is as a way to optimize performance, they decided to reduce the variable of the cyclists sleeping in crappy beds or unfamiliar beds. And instead they had like an advanced team go into the next hotel, disassemble the bed in the room, assemble the person's own bed, then they get to sleep in their own bed. And then they get to take it apart. They move it to the next spot. And they're just like, you know, mitigating one little point of friction that could possibly lead to le like lower performance. Yeah. And that is marginal, marginal gains. That's what it was called. Marginal gains. Okay. Yeah. But, but it's mm -hmm. someone's job to figure out where the marginal gains can be had for these other performers who are working together 
and to optimize that performance. And there rarely is somebody whose job it is to ensure that everyone's working together the best way they can, because that person's not billable or that person is a, you know, a, a different kind of MO, but like, there's just not as much investment in, I mean, I would imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, I would assume that there are more than one support person for every cyclist on a team. There's probably, it's probably a two to one ratio or a three to one. It's probably not one to one or less than one to one. Whereas like, I think in most professional environments, if anybody's responsible for that, it might be a manager or it might be in like an agency, you might call that a project manager, but that's often mm. like a one to five or one to six or one to eight ratio of people who it's their job to care about how the work gets done. And it's just, yeah. it's underemphasized. And I think that that's, you know, there's just, there are examples out there where it gets indexed more, but there's a lot more examples where it's like horrifyingly under-indexed. So there's two things that are emerging here. One is this idea that you can optimize through small adjustments, iterative mm -hmm. adjustments to use business language um, in a way that will ultimately create like a bigger outcome. So mm -hmm. using that, the, originally it was the, the the British Olympic team and then eventually became Sky, which won, I think, seven Tour de France mm. uh, events with this methodology. Mm. The, the idea behind that was not so much the 1% marginal improvement, but what that actually means from a cultural behavior point of view. Right. So this okay. is really important. So right. um, we all know continuous improvement. We, we, that's, like, that's part of the common language that we use in the agile-ish world that we have mm. come up with uh, in the last couple of decades. Mm. And it's fine. It's good. It's great that we think about these continuous improvements and these iterative changes. And that language is well understood for the most part. I think what's misunderstood is the fact that it's a cultural change right. versus being a mechanical change. Right, right. So exactly. a lot of companies are thinking, well, what is that 1% improvement? Could we increase the speed of the SaaS product that we have? Or yeah. is there a step in our process that we could remove so there's one less step? What we're not looking for is these mechanical changes. That's that, that's there, and there, you know there are definitely optimizations there. They shouldn't be ignored. The real optimization is around how we choose to behave, right? And the agreement that stands behind that behavior. Right. So if I behave in a certain way, and you behave in a contradictory way, there's going to be friction. Right. But if we have an agreement that we're going to behave in a certain way, not only is there optimization. But there's an increasing optimization that happens over time because, as we know, the learning curve is I'm unconsciously incompetent. In other words, I don't know what I don't know. Yeah. Then I become consciously incompetent, which means right. now I know what I don't know. This right. is the beginning of an agreement. Hey, Joe, I'm less capable of doing these things and more capable of doing those things. Let's talk about that. And there's, there's a, by the way, in that stage, there's a lot of friction and anxiety because it's mm -hmm. admitting that I don't know, right? Mm -hmm. It's admitting that I'm vulnerable and that I'm stupid and I just don't have any clue what I'm doing and saying to you, hey, Joe, I'm not sure what I'm doing here. Yep. That's where the most friction is in that second step. Then we get to competent consciousness. Like we mm -hmm. are competent at the thing we're doing, mm -hmm. but we're conscious about it. Like this is your, maybe you've got a, a teenager that's learning to drive. It's mm -hmm. I, I'm steering and I'm doing the gears and I'm focusing and right. I'm checking my mirrors and I'm doing it very consciously. 
at some point that becomes unconscious competence where as you might experience, you might drive somewhere and not even mm -hmm. remember how you got there because right, things right, are so right. automatic. In that same way, those agreements about behavior become the beginning, middle and part of our strategy. So our mm -hmm. strategy might be, okay, we're going to start new behavior. That optimization is you're going to bring your favorite pillow and your favorite blankie on your trip with you, right? Mm -hmm. That's the, 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 mm -hmm. the, the athlete example. Or in a business example, it might be, before we start every meeting, we're going to start with a health check-in. We're just mm -hmm. going to ask each other, hey, how are you doing? Right. Are you above the line? Are you below the line? It doesn't mm -hmm. really matter where you are. We just need to know that, hey, if you're below the line, what can I do to support you? Or do you need me just to leave you alone today? Mm -hmm. Maybe you need me to rush down to the coffee shop and pick up you mm -hmm. some coffee. Like, mm -hmm. Or maybe you, you just need the day off. Maybe today right. is not a great thing. Um, a mutual friend of ours, Craig Bryant, was telling me about the fact that they have these mental health days. Mm. And so instead of saying sick days, they call them health days. So before mm. you get sick, before you get run down, before you right. get into a, a situation which ultimately requires a sick day, right. you might say, I'm on a hiding to nothing right now and I, I just don't see any way out today. Right. Now is not the best day for me to be doing these critical things. So right. they talk about that. So in yeah. that way, you're starting new behavior through conversation. And at right. first it feels, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like, I don't know how to talk about this stuff. I don't know how to be vulnerable. But that competence improves over time. Right. And then slowly but surely, without even needing to do a formal health check in, the team's just doing it automatically. They're right. just automatically saying, Joe, how are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. And they're not asking it in that flippant kind of like, hey, I got to check this off the list so I can get actually right. get to the next thing. Right, it's, right, right. How are you doing? Because I generally need to know. Like, right. I need to understand so that our, our relationship. Right can be based on an authentic understanding of is this stuff that we're going to work on today going right. to be worthwhile doing or is your head somewhere else? You, right. you had a car accident on the way into work or you missed the, 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 yep. you know, the, the subway, yep. your kid didn't want to get out of bed this morning, <laughs> you haven't had your coffee, right. any number of things. Right. But if we haven't developed the conscious desire to have those conversations, right. then you know, how are we going to get there? And then you had a great story about Dave, who you used to work with yes. and how he taught you to have a different kind of conversation. So yeah. that's a, that's a more, that's a really good anecdote. Maybe we yeah. can talk about that as well, but that that's the kind of new conversation, which means new behavior. And yeah. then that new learning eventually becomes something we become really competent at unconsciously. Yeah. So. Yep. And I, I, so just to kind of double back to the example, I kind of threw out there of the incremental improvement, concept like the the what was valuable were what well, was making incremental improvements something that everyone was excited about like yes. that was the the accomplishment wasn't we figured out bring our beds with us the accomplishment wasn't the little it was like incremental improvement became our love language yes. like like that is like everybody knows everybody knows now that like that behavior is rewarded that behavior is is like we're excited about that behavior. We champion it. So like yes. we model that. We then inspire people to do it. And I think that that's like that that is the and that's probably the hard part of how to direct behavior, whether it's like dragging from in front or trying to push from behind or trying to do it from within. Like there's a lot of schools of thoughts and all those things. But to your example of like I was I was challenged at this like pivotal point in my 
evolution in my role. And in like you describing those kind of like phases of learning, I was like triggered by all of them because like I was back in that situation where like there is something to there. I can remember vividly when I went from like this, this fear that I was going to get fired every day. And then I realized mm -hmm. it had been a couple of weeks since I thought I was going to get fired every day. Like I didn't even perceive that it happened, but like several weeks I was like, you know what? Like it's been a little while since I've thought like I'm definitely getting fired today. So like, I think I must be figuring some stuff out. And I think then when I achieved like a level of, equilibrium part of the challenge was like when stuff becomes too easy and mm. you're unconscious about it then you're not like growing and you're not challenging yourself and you can the risk is you can like settle into a gear and just cruise because you're not right. there aren't like outward forces forcing you to get better when right. you're starting right. there's outward forces forcing you to get better as you right. get better at it you have to find internal forces that force you to get better. And one example of this was, you know, I was in a business development role. I was a salesperson. I was good at communicating. I could think on my feet. Like these were my superpowers that made me good at my job. And I think strongly that everybody's superpower is equal parts their super weakness. Mm -hmm. So like I had figured out a way to like weaponize empathy. Like that's what I had figured out in my career was like I could monetize and weaponize empathy. Like I know what that ding dong wants. I know what that person thinks is funny. I know what they're afraid of, like whatever. So when I was in my role in a very high performing team with a lot of strong opinions, a lot of brilliant people who had a lot of diverging points of view, like trying to get to some kind of consensus around a thing or a single point of view or a way we're going to do things was like a day-to-day -day struggle. And I got better and better and better at getting people in line with the way that, you know, I thought this needed to go. Like I figured out what this person was motivated. Like, so I got good at making these meetings a little shorter, getting to this consensus. And one of my colleagues, Dave DeRucci, who I love, who like gave me the best piece of like professional advice I ever heard in my life. He just pulled me aside in a very professorial kind of Dave way. He said, you know, you know, you're getting good at like figuring out how to get everybody where they need to go. You're getting good at like shortening the distance between like where everybody walks into the meeting mm -hmm. and then where they walk out. Like, you know, you're good at like seeing the kind of invisible lines between them. Like, I'm nodding like that. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Like, he's like, you know, you can see the little invisible lines and he's, you know, you, you can kind of pull those strings and he's like, stop being so fucking lazy. And I was just, it like, I was like gobsmacked. I was like, that was not, that was not the end of the sentence I was expecting. He's like, stop being so lazy. Like, stop figuring out all these shortcuts to get people where you want them to go and cheat code them there because A, that's lazy. B, they're going to wake up to it and start to resent you. And C, it's like, it's empty calories. Like you're getting there on a false pretense. You're not earning it. So if your goal is just to get to the destination by hook or by crook, then why have the meeting? Like, who's this for? If, we're, if, we're, if you're just going to go in here and like, I'm telling you, there's not, if I go more than three months without flashing back to, like, I remember the hallway I was standing in when Dave like, very politely pulled me aside and gave me this critical advice. I think about it all the time because it, it held up a mirror to me and said, like, these things that you're good at, yeah. like, use your powers for good. Don't yeah. use your powers for evil. Like, figure yeah. out like, this is a slippery slope you can get into and stop trying to make things easy at the expense of making them good. Well, what Dave saw, I think, is a thing that we forget about very often, and that there's this spectrum of work, and on one end is transaction, and on the other end of that spectrum is relationship. Mm. 
And we are now in a phase, maybe we are at the, hopefully at the end of this phase where software forced us to think in a transactional way. Everything's PLG, everything's, you know, it's not about relationship, it's about one click e-commerce. It's about getting right. the UI and the UX to a point where somebody doesn't have to even think about what they're doing. Right. Right. It's right. seamless. <clears throat> and on the other end of that spectrum is relationship, which is the lack of laziness. It's the work mm. that needs to happen. It's the mm. relationship. It's the working mm. through relating. Mm. And that's hard work. And so if you're in an organization where you think everything is transactional, you get that, right? So you get what you deserve and you will find yourself in very short-term relationships. You will get yourself into transactional style relationships. Whereas doing the work has this other benefit, which is you can then rely on and trust that group or that individual in a way that allows you for very long-term outcomes. And I think we both experienced this where we we both worked in organizations where it was incredibly low soft turnover. Nobody really wanted to leave because yep. such a high level of trust had been created, which yep. has its own 100%. You know, relate. There are some you know related um, concerns about making sure that you've, you're bringing in new blood and, and, and yep. exciting new ideas. But the the investment in relationships is something that generally we're not as a society that excited about because it's work because it's non-transactional it requires us to do the work and so there is that conundrum which is am i going to build something that is infinitely scalable and transaction orientated or is there something that's going to be relationship and where we see that that the rubber hit the road is we as a especially you and I, because we deal with a lot of tech companies and, and especially software companies, SaaS companies, mm-hmm. the, the business is about creating this seamless transaction. Right. But the people inside the business actually still have to have relationships. Right, 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 right. right. Cultures yep. are not meshing. Yep. So yep. you're getting, you're getting yep. hey, this is what we do. We create one-click experiences. Right. But we really want you guys to stick around for 10 years and do good work and relate to each other. Like, right. No, yeah. It's, it's you, you are incentivizing one thing over and over and over and over again implicitly. And then you're trying to incentivize the exact opposite at the same time and mm-hmm. expect people to kind of live in these parallel universes without a struggle, like without mm-hmm. being. And I, and I think what's illustrative in my experience of the same phenomenon is having worked in like highly transactional environments. Like I was a recruiter for five years and there's a reason why like recruiters are everyone's least favorite phone call every day. It's not because their history's true monsters. It's because their incentive structure, their, their environment, their culture is so monetized to transactional behavior that like they are, then they behave that way. They, they seek those rewards, right? So like when I worked at I'll, you know, I don't know. I don't want to get in too much trouble. When I work for a, a multinational recruiting company, staffing company, you were required to connect over the phone or via email with 25 sales prospects per day, hmm. which meant you probably had to reach out to 75 to 80 per, te- per day per day in the hopes of getting a live yeah. interaction. 20. So you would go into a week knowing this week I am teed up for 75 attempts at connection where two thirds of them are going to fail every day. So I've got to like churn 
And so you this want... is what we call taking a swim in the ocean of rejection exactly. every single morning. Oh, it's... Sunday nights, Richard, I would have like anticipating going into that week. Like Sunday my series. Oh my gosh, she would like, I would get like sad by dinner time and like withdrawn after dinner and just anticipating this like just pummeling. And, and what I found was in parallel to that, I started to create a professional organization here at the time. Un, like, I'm not going to apologize for the fact it was for business purposes to create Philomade, which was this professional creative organization to bring all these people together so that I could use it for, you know, my business purposes partly. But then when I saw in that was like, when you slowed down and you had more space to be more authentic with more people and be more yourself and get to know them better. And like, I probably wasn't hitting my numbers like I had been anymore, but I made relationships that led to countless things because yeah. it created the space and the, and, and, and the incentive changed to like, no, no, no. Like I don't want that reward anymore. I want this reward. And as a result, I'm going to focus and take my time and, and do these things. But I think you're absolutely yeah. right. Like the transaction versus relationship thing is healthy when it's balanced, but rarely is it balanced. Yeah. So let's maybe um, talk a little bit about some of the tactical things that people can do. Mm -hmm. um, and a, a lot of these are non-intuitive or maybe non-obvious. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the right word, but um, things that, have, that I've done that are not a good use of time and certainly don't produce a lot of money in the inception of the thing mm -hmm. have created the best long-term outcomes for me. Okay. So these, these are examples, not mm -hmm. necessarily for everybody to go away from this conversation with and right. say, oh, I'm going to do the same thing. But there is literally no equation that makes sense when you write a book, it is a massive amount of time, a year or two of work. Mm -hmm. It is a significant investment of attention, which mm -hmm. means you are, it's a, you know, a game of, of trade-offs. Right. You're away from something else. Right. Yep. 100%. Yep. It is um, probably the worst way to make money. If not, <laughs> if not, apart from owning a restaurant, it's, it might be the worst. Um, and, and and so on the face of it, when you look at the spreadsheet, it doesn't make any sense to do that. Um, the same might be true if you are a salesperson selling enterprise SaaS product or something like that. Mm. For you to hold a dinner for 15 people, it doesn't sound like a good use of time. Mm. It, it could cost you $1,000 to entertain somebody in a nice restaurant. Mm. Uh, really, how many conversations are you going to genuinely have during the couple hours that you're in the restaurant? Mm. Um, Hey, how are you even going to make sure that you can measure what outcome? Right. You know, is there is there? A I think right. There is, but these are the kind of examples of things which seem, on the face of it, to be non-obvious and counterintuitive. And yet, I can say at the age of fifty-three mm -hmm. that those are the things that have led to the most value creation mm -hmm. in terms of both relationship at the individual level and also relationship at the genuinely, hey, this is my my status in my community. Like mm -hmm. I did these things and therefore I, I deserve your attention in the next conversation that we're gonna have. Mm -hmm. um, which I think is is um, an important distinction to make from what I hear, what you just explained 
which is kind of transactional, you know, go, go out and make a thousand cold calls a week and see what happens. Because those non-obvious, non-measurable things are not very fashionable right now. Mm -hmm. And yet those are the things that make the biggest difference mm -hmm. in my experience. Mm -hmm. So when Dave DeRucci says, stop being lazy and do the work, that also means when you are interacting with a potential customer, with a potential client, right. do the work that might take a little extra time. Ask right. them the hard questions. Yes. Get into it with them. Yeah. Ask them the things that maybe will come up still months away and may yeah. not seem that relevant today. Yep. but we'll need to be included co-author documentation together instead yep. of just boilerplating the crap yeah those kinds of things they do take more time I, I will admit that right openly right but the the outcome is counterintuitively better yeah. and i think that's the problem that we're up against right now is that we're living in a society especially a work culture that says everything has to be performance-based everything mm -hmm. has to be measurable mm -hmm. well there's a good counter to that. Do you measure your relationship with your wife and with your kids? Do you have a QBR with your kids every month, every quarter? <laughs> if you did, it'd be a really shitty relationship, right? I, would, I almost am tempted to do it just because it would be hilarious, but it is. Yeah. Well, a friend of mine actually does it as a joke with his family, and I think that's yes. like the best thing. He has a PowerPoint, and they do <laughs> it. I love that. Oh, I love yeah. that. Yeah, but I that's think, the that's the thing we have to we have to yeah. truly look at tactics yep. and strategies that feel counterintuitive because they are relationship based yeah. and ultimately have a better outcome, and that makes that handoff that we're talking about so much more successful because you've invested right. more time in it. And I think that it either directly or indirectly cultivates process based thinking versus results based thinking. Yes, which I think is crucial. Like I think especially in Anything where there's an outcome like product design or sales or, or anything like that, where there is a designed or intended or hoped for outcome, that results-based thinking can become a very dangerous place to live. And you mm -hmm. can totally take the wrong lessons out of that. Whereas mm -hmm. like, it is harder in a lot of ways to quantify process-based thinking. The journey is the yeah. more you know, valuable thing. The steps, the time, all that investment mm -hmm. tends to be harder to point to as a measurable outcome, but, but so here's a good example of a measure, measurable outcome being detrimental. One of mm -hmm. my previous clients, I don't know how public they are about this, so I'll protect the names of the innocent in this case, but mm -hmm. they worked in enterprise software. They worked with a lot of like enterprise software for HR, human capital kind of processes. So a lot of like LinkedIn would have been like their dream client, right? So like all those kinds of like HR software, things like that. And what they found was one of the most popular and and like like easy to understand units of measurement of success for their clients were was NPS, Net Promoter Score. Like just for their software, for their products, like NPS was like the holy grail, best way to measure effect. So they adopted that internally. So they started to measure their teams in terms mm -hmm. of NPS. They would have their clients fill out a survey every week and they would grade them on their satisfaction. And they were told, you know, the higher the satisfied clients, the better we're doing. That's what we're yeah. incentivizing. That's what we're, we're aiming at. And yeah. after doing it for months, they realized what a mistake they'd made because people that in their organization who were only incentivized to make clients happy would do anything okay. to make 
clients happy. They would go over budget. Yeah. They would go, they would waste time. They would, if, if they knew that like smiley faces was the, the only thing that mattered, then they were overdoing it in that direction. And they were ruining the profitability of the firm. They were, and, and frankly, creating long-term toxic relations with these clients who like right. just got whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. Like and people pleasing, yeah. mm -hmm. what am I hiring you for? If all you're doing is everything I tell you to do, like I hired you to tell me what to do. I thought so like another, just a, a good example of like that kind of results-based thinking there's, there's like a siren song to it that I get. Like I want to be able to figure out what the thing is. But I think the other part of this that I think makes it hard on people is resisting the urge to like have a thing figured out and stop thinking about it. I think that is a yeah. Yeah. huge challenge in people's professional careers is no, no, no. I, I figured that out. Like, I don't think about yeah. that. Anymore. I figured yeah. that out. Like starting to get lazy about things like that and put them on a shelf because you've codified how to do it is a great way to find like 18 months. That thing is broken beyond repair because right. you're not being intentional anymore. You're not like, living in the the details of what you're doing you're trying to like and you know mm -hmm. you've seen this a million times and i've seen this with especially with things that scare people like sales yeah. like i want to figure this out and put it away and not think about it i want to hire somebody and yeah. not think about it anymore i want to like take this yeah. thing off my plate and find the solution that yeah. makes me not think about this anymore and it's like great like i hope you're figuring out what you're gonna do next because you're six to twelve months away from going out of business well i mean you you've You've delicately threaded it back to the original part of this conversation, which is that non-gold loans, and that is the behavior that you're agreeing to to create those marginal gains is really the key, and that's process. Right. You are agreeing right. yes. to constantly seek out right. and fall in love with the process. You are right. looking forward to the process being the thing that you focus on, that you talk about, that you show attention to rather than the result. The result is inevitable. If you do a good job with the process, the result kind of takes care of itself, just yeah. like in your relationship with your family. If right. You take care of the interactions that you have on a day-to-day -day basis, and you bring your values, your family values to that, then guess what? In 10 or 20 or 30 years time, you can look back and say, right. look, you know, good human beings emerged out of this or good relationships emerged right. out of this. And so when you talk a little bit about that, um, th that idea that, hey, I'm going to just like, be the thing that I've been told to be. The, the, the job description said I have to sell things. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going right. to move quickly towards the sale. Then what happens is you've created the right incentive, but the wrong outcome. Right. So the incentive is, oh, go and sell the thing. Right. So now the PM is get handed a job by the salesperson. Hey, I closed this deal. Here's the thing I closed. And I'm going to get my commission because I closed that deal. Right. And the PM is looking at this going, this is garbage. We can't do this work or we can't meet these yep. whatever parameters, whether they're budget or timeline. And so the salesperson did their job. Right. But now the PM and the rest of the team is now left trying to figure this stuff out. And that's yeah. the constant handoff issue we have is yep. if you have salespeople incentivized to close deals and you have project people or product people, depending on what kind of environment you're yeah. in, that are incentivized to build a great experience, those two things are going to be a conflict with each other. Yeah. So, so if you're structuring a team and you're thinking about who must I hire and how must I incentivize them, then the salesperson's job is to filter good opportunities for the team to then decide whether they want to work on or not. Yeah. 
Now I can literally hear salespeople's heads exploding <laughs> right, right. Yes. on the other side of this thing. <laughs> yes. Salespeople are like, there's no way, like, how am I ever going to hit my numbers and how yeah. am I ever going to like, you know, that's a longer conversation and right. that's like, there's too much relationship stuff in there and there's too much work involved in that. Right. And the answer is yes. <laughs> totally. Totally. I mean, that's, yep. I was, so having been a salesperson, I can vividly remember having interactions with my manager and having explained to me that we're doing this for my benefit because I'm motivated by selling a thing. I'm motivated by closing the deal and have, and having this like out of body experience where I was like, what about me makes you think that that's my motivation? My motivation is I like and care about these people. I want to set up work that they're going to be excited about every day because I work and care for these people. Like yeah. that's what yeah. I'm motivated by. I'm motivated mm -hmm. by that person. We had a, one project where we got to work with the largest newspaper in Puerto Rico and one of our designers, Tisenia Perez Cruz, who was brilliant. It was like the newspaper her grandmother read every day. And it was like the mm -hmm. newspaper she remembered from her. I was like, I gotta have that project. Like that would be just, yeah. you know, that's a little bit of a satisfying experience for her to have. It's a hell yeah. of a lot more exciting to me than this other thing that, is a bunch of bozos doing dumb shit. Like who the care who cares about those guys? Like this is fun. I think, I think like there is this impetus of like, well, all salespeople, like not all salespeople. Cause you might like, how many salespeople do you employ? Do you employ like a thousand? Well, in that case, do you need to make like all salespeople kinds of decisions? Yeah. You have two salespeople. One of them's named Joe and one of them named Richard. Make Richard decisions and Joe decisions. Like you don't need to make right. some kind of like job description based decision that's good for like a legion of salespeople and is extensive like no like you have two humans you employ figure out what makes sense for one person figure out what makes sense for the other person stop being so lazy about it like yeah i don't know. yeah you know what one thing that's happened of course is that um we've become we've created so this is a, a business version of self-help porn which mm -hmm. is some individual has created a successful business and now they are the authority on that. And so they have the YouTube channel yep. or the Instagram channel, or whatever it is, or something on, on LinkedIn. And they say, this is how you do the thing. Yeah. Right. So they were with some, you know, unicorn sized company that gives them associated credibility, even though they joined, you know, when the company was already at a billion dollars and right their job essentially was to host cocktail parties, not to create any value. And so now they've got their own channel and they're telling the world how to sell stuff. And they're saying, what you need to do is you need to create a structure where you've got, you know, SDRs or BDRs doing these kinds of things. And you've got AEs doing these things and you've got CS people, customer success people doing these things. You've got sales ops and you need to build out this whole team and you need to hire a VP of sales to make sure that all happens. And you've got to do it within the first year of, you know, getting your funding, otherwise yeah. it's not going to work and it's going to take a little time to ramp up anyway. And so every startup and every small business of which there are, I guess, by the last measure, something like 27 million or something mm. in the country, mm. all these companies are looking at these people saying, oh, I got to go and do this stuff. Right. So, I mean, I hear this as an advisor. I hear my entrepreneurial CEOs who's just raised money say this, oh, I, I need to go and get a VP of sales to assemble and build out a sales team. And I go, Oh, that's interesting. Do you want 
to sell more or do you want to build a team? Right. Because those are not the same thing. Right. Right. right, right. Also, why do you think this needs to be done now? Exactly. And they go, well, our investors tell us. And I was like, well, what do your investors do? Right. Are they investors or are they entrepreneurs who've built companies from the ground up? Yeah. yeah. And if they've built companies from the ground up, which is rare, right. what did they do that's different from your context? So how can you distinguish between yeah. their experience and your experience? Yeah. So what often happens is companies are saying, well, we need all these things. So they go out and they hire a VP of sales. Right. And the VP of sales job is not to sell because God forbid a VP of sales sells anything. No, yeah, no. They, they go out and assemble a team. So they yeah. go out and, you know, they get, they, they, not only do they assemble their own team, but they also hire a company that does lead gen. And then right. they've also got a marketing company that they work with. Right. And so they've got all these expenses. And so within the first 18 months of hiring that, that person who's head of sales, right. there have been no sales. But right. there's been an increasing amount of expenses and right. now complexity. Right. right. And that complexity is also leading to more friction because now you've got more handoffs between right. all the different components of this yep. thing. And the people that are actually doing the work, whether you've got a product environment where people are receiving those opportunities or building features for those new clients, or whether you've got an agency environment like we had where you've got project managers receiving opportunities to actually do the service work. They're confused. They're like, well, hang on a second. You guys aren't bringing us any real opportunities except for the stuff that you're incentivized to do, which is basically just give us crap. Right. And, and now you've got all this confusion. Yep. So my advice to, to companies is think very, very, very carefully about hiring senior leaders of sales right. when you're looking for sales. If you're looking for sales, learn how to sell mm -hmm. now you're like well what like hang on a second what if i'm uh when the founder of the organization and i'm like the, the smartest engineer on the team and like that that's great but you're also the most qualified person to go out and sell as well right so in a small company it might be the best thing for you to, to go out and actually learn how to do that because right. until you learn how to do it it's very difficult for you to hire anybody else to do that work for you yeah because they're not going to know what to do. And yeah. most clients and most companies want to buy from the people that own and run the organization. They yeah. like that. They like that sense of like, oh, you're, yeah. you're, you've got something at stake here. Yep. So be slow to hire and create complexity when the opportunity to build a relationship is yep. really high. You can yep. go out and build really, really good relationships by betering your product or prototyping yep. your product with an organization say, Hey, we've got this cool stuff. We want to see if you can use it. Yep. Do you mind if we kind of give it to you for a couple of months? And if you really like it, then we'll start charging you versus let's go and build an, a massive sales organization. That's not yep. even going to generate opportunities until that's, you know, hit its stride, yeah. which could be months or years from now. Yeah. You, you build all this infrastructure for scale. That's never going to come. So you've yeah. like prepared this whole thing for no purpose. Ultimately. I, I so I've been recently doing some research through one of my consulting projects with venture capital firms and with funding organizations like that. And mm -hmm. I've had a chance to talk to people that, that work in communications and brand and marketing in those yeah. organizations. Yeah. And what I was not aware of, because I'm, I'm, that's not my world, I'm, I'm not fluent in that. This was kind of like a revelation for me was that they're, you know, they're 
has become a maturity and an accepted way and an equilibrium in the way that things are marketed, that the way that these, you know, startups, these angel, you know, funding level organizations, there was just like a blocking and tackling as a playbook that these teams execute that are, that are yes. the moving parts of growth that they then employ. Yes. And yes. now that's become more rigid. It's really hard to A, like sift through all the noise or B, hear a distinct signal among all the noise because it all looks the same. It all sounds the same. And there's so damn much of it. The thing that they were most interested in was like, when have other like early stage companies, what have they done to like put a focus on the scientist behind this? Who's on the board? Like, who are the people? What are the people's stories you can tell? What are like, there's this whole thirst for just to tell a different kind of story mm-hmm. that that tiptoes around the marketing like firewalls that people put up. Like if you right. keep market at it, marketing at me the same way over and over again, eventually I'm going to build these calluses to it and I'm going to become deaf to it. And I'm not even going to like perceive it anymore because I'm annoyed by it. And I, and I can identify it now more easily and I'm resistant to it. Yeah. I mean, look at so, our children's generation. They just, they, they're blind to it. They're completely blind, blind to it. Yeah. it. It's just, it's like ultraviolet light. Like they don't even see it. So how do I, the, the goal then becomes, or the trick becomes, or the, the, sales output has to become like, how do I step aside all those like beachheads and get to the person on the other side? And more often, I mean, at least now, the conversation that I've heard and the kind of research I've been doing more and more, it's about like, well, who is the, like the founder? Who is the the hero of this story? How do we make them more of a hero rather than this really pretty marketing site, rather than this, right. you know, social stuff we're doing or whatever the typical narrative is, right? It's narrative. Yeah. yeah it's which is probably probably one of the most fundamental human conditions is to be able to tell each other stories, right? So we're, we know that we're wired for that, that most right. of our senior or uh, high level cognitive stuff is dedicated towards storytelling and story remembering. Yep. And we, we thrive in those environments where we can tell narrative, understand narrative and, and remark on narrative as Seth Godin said, you know, a million years ago in, mm. in the purple cow books, like, Hey, this is this is about remarkability. If I hear a good joke and I can mm. remember that joke and I can tell that joke, it has massive advantages because I can then connect to the people in my groups and my right. sense of belonging increases. If I've got a good story, if I've got a good narrative, the same is true of all those things. And marketing ultimately is the remarkability of that narrative. And mm. that's never going to change ever. Mm-hmm. Storytelling is never going to change. Mm. And it's the ability for these companies to understand what their narrative is. What is it that they're doing that's unique and interesting right. and authentically coming from that founder's experience? Like, you know, hey, I invented this thing because I lost a close relative to this particular issue. Or, yep. you know, I'm, I, I, I come from a country where, you know, we're ankle deep in water right now because of climate change and we right. want to do something about that. There, there has to be something compelling about that story to make it remarkable. Yep. And that gets back to relationships. If we're going to create sales and marketing opportunities, we have to go to the unobvious or the counterintuitive. And that is we've got to bring people into close contact with each other, right. have the opportunity to relate to each other yep. and not think, well, let's go and get some, some community software where we can manage tens of thousands of people in a moderated environment. How about we invite 20 people to dinner Right. And they can create a WhatsApp group and they can continue to connect with each right. other. Yep. 
and, and, and we will have yep. nothing to do with it. We will not. Yes. We will not moderate it. Yep. We will not have our legal team submit terms and conditions right. to that that thing. Right. It will allow itself to grow. And right. and actually, this is one of the things that I really loved about working at Envision is that, in spite of its product problems, it never forgot that lesson. It never, it never forgot that this is about conversations. Right. You know, the the podcast has always been probably one of the most authentic conversations about design that's ever been created mm. in the world of podcasts, mm. the books, the in-person meetings, the uh, design leadership forum, mm. all of those things were intimate and conversation based. Mm. And at no point did the sales team come along and say, well, can we leverage this thing? Or the legal team say, Hey, we've got to do it differently because you know, there's going to be this consideration or that consideration. They were like, right, we have to let these things in this way. We have right. to measure it. Let these things be the things. And there were some there were some risky choices. You know, we we made documentaries. Mm. We we did stuff that other people weren't doing mm. that ironically cost a lot less than people think. Like a documentary, um, like Squads or Transformation by Design, those cost like three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That's probably less than one month of AdWords. Sure. And it certainly is less expensive than one VP of sales. Hundred percent. And I, I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think like the, the part of this that I'm drawn to that I have tried to figure out on my own experience is there's a difference between creating space or trying to lead people to a destination. If you just create space, like this is a space where this can happen. It doesn't have a vector. It doesn't have like a direction. It doesn't have a name or a goal on the end of it. It's just a space that you can occupy and make of it what you will and do with you what you the it's harder to make a case for that because that is not as like aligned with goals or measurable or whatever. But when people perceive that they're being led, they are resistant. When people instead feel like I've been welcomed into a valuable place with other valuable people to design my own end, that is yeah. super attractive to smart and talented yeah. and excited people. Whereas the other, like, don't try to lead me. Don't try to lead me by the notes because people just have this, you know, it's a visceral reaction to that. Right. feeling of that phenomenon under your feet yeah and and the more the more tuned we are to the authenticity which i think again our I, I think my children's generation are starting to be very very aware of what's authentic and what's not they have this like hyper sensitivity to whether somebody's lying or participating in the, the fakeness that social media sometimes Look at the you know, ugly photos my son will snap to friends to prove that he was someplace versus like the manicured photos that I'll post. And he thinks I am a sweat and a try hard. And like, you are really like over packaging your bullshit dad. Whereas he's yeah. like, Boop, I was here. And it's just this like unfiltered yeah. kind of glimpsy shot of Boston or whatever. We went up there. Like yeah. the attempt at manicuring is repulsive to him. Like, Oh my goodness. I'm yeah. going to have to redo my whole entire social media. Life. Whole yeah. I, but I think, I think it's good. Right. I think there's, um, yeah. You know the, the the fake meter is is sensitive. Yes. Like the Geiger meter of fakeness is is aware and sensitive enough to actually like call yeah. people out on this bullshit. Yep. And I think there's there's something quite lovely about that. It's a little bit like when I mean, I'm aging myself, but when I first watched like the Jerry Springers of the world, I was like, wow, mm. I kind of. At first, I was like, this is kind of gross, and at the yeah. same time, really interesting that we're willing to do our dirty laundry and right. 
And that obviously led to an entire generation of reality TV, where it was like, look, scripted stuff is great, but have you seen this other weird stuff that's going on? That's even better. But then Um, what all that led to was this current phenomenon, which is fake authenticity. To yes. use the to extend the reality show metaphor, like yes. one of my favorite scripted reality, reality. Yeah. yeah, you know, like mm-hmm. one of my favorite reality shows is Alone, where they just drop people off in the middle of nowhere and Godspeed. The first season is my favorite season because they were screwed. Like these people were, <laughs> they were doomed so head and just lost, like just completely. Lo- now, now people like I'm sure you could hire a coach to prepare you for Alone. I'm sure yeah. you could like invest yeah. in your own success in successfully navigating this. And like, that's the, and I think that, you know, our, our kids generation had to build this survival skill of like decoding inauthenticity because it's so easy to be branded and twee in an Instagram post. And they have to, they, they, they see how like manicured and presented everything is. And they're trying to, decode that i mean it's a survival well, well, let's think about this then through the lens that we're talking about right so we're talking about work we're talking about can people ever learn to work yes. with each other is that even possible to do that and we work to to the point where we have less dysfunction and one of the things that comes up for me is if i show up with my heart on my sleeve in other words mm-hmm. i show up with heart and not head mm-hmm. i find I'm getting to that space that you you just described far sooner. I'm not saying like, hey, this is the outcome and we're definitely going to get to this outcome. Here's the end goal. But rather I'm saying, look, I'm showing up, feeling vulnerable and feeling nervous about this stuff. I'm going to tell you about all this shit before you even ask. And I'm going to lay it out there and we're going to have a deep conversation before we even cover the weather. That creates the space and we know there's, there's recently been a, a study from Harvard that says when you lead with vulnerability, people are more likely to trust you, they're more mm-hmm. likely to open up. And so why not? It's why it's hardwired into us. Yeah. Why wouldn't you show up for that? Why wouldn't you go and um, deliver the imperfect version of yourself? In fact, I was just writing something on LinkedIn this morning, which is, you know, we live in a performance culture where everything is just non-stop like performance right you have to be you have to wear a thing on your wrist and you have to wear a thing on your ring and you've got to measure this and you've got to have a, a you know a meditation schedule and a yoga schedule and a gym schedule and you've got to take the these supplements and everything mm-hmm. and by the time you've got through like your morning pages and your you know all of your stuff it's it's like two o'clock in the afternoon yeah. right you haven't you, even started your day yet totally. and, have you ever listened to the human lab podcast yes so if he does everything that he's like quantified, like there's not a second of his day where he's not like trying to get the eyes light to hit the right yeah. angle of the sun. Like you exactly. And so we live in this performance culture yeah. where yeah. we're trying so hard yeah. to be better by being our best that it's we've actually led to this situation where all of the wonderfulness that comes out of randomness and imperfection and experimentation is lost. Right. And the very nature of the human being existing at all is randomness. Like yeah. the whole point of evolution is to try a bunch of stuff and go, right. we're going to mutate a bunch of things and see what works and what sticks yeah. and what doesn't. And that's, you know, I mean, that's half the, half of my books are just about experimentation. Right? Yep. Design sprint is really just a fancy name for like, fuck around and find out. Yeah, right. <laughs> try some stuff, 
yeah. uh, in a in a time boxed period with a bunch yeah. of people that are in agreement yeah. about you know what it is that they're trying to do here. Yep. And guess what? You're going to find a relatively quick and easy outcome yeah. because of the space that you've created. You've created the space for imperfection. You've created the space for relationship development. Yep. I mean, we, we used to say like a design sprint is nothing more than a Trojan horse for getting people to talk to each other. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. Like, you know, teams would, would hire right. us and they'd say, well, we've got to solve this big, you know, this kind of this, this head scratching problem. Yep. And we'd be, you know, a couple of days into a design sprint and they come to us and say, we've done more week in two days than we have in the last six months. And we go, yeah. well, why do you, why do you think that is? And they go, well, we're talking to each other. Yeah. We're yep. in the same room with a whiteboard and we're talking to each other and you guys are facilitating a space for invention and experimentation and imperfection. Yes. There is nobody trying to be perfect here. Everybody's just trying to say, Hey, Yep, I'm here to find out. I'm yep. here to learn. I'm here to be that student mind, that childlike mind. Yep. You know, a lot of the, the the exercises are really just kindergarten games dressed totally, up to, yeah, totally, 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 you know, totally. just to show people that it's possible. Yeah, it's it's kindergarten games with some Jared Spool sprinkled on top to make them much smarter. <laughs> but that's effectively what these <laughs> things are. And and it, what's special about that space is it is a it is a distinct space outside of your normal workspace where right. all of you are on equal, equal footing because right. we've invited you into our space that is a different thing than you do every... So let's say it's a website redesign project or it's like a... Pro, whatever it is. Like in this space, you, all of your identities change because it's not your work. It's not your your company. It's not, not your, so much your identities, but your status. Your state. I your think state. that's important. I think, I think identity is important. And I think you know having yeah. a sense of who you are probably becomes a little bit more vibrant in those I mean, in situations because you can be your true self. Right. You can actually identify. Right. What's happening is we're reducing the opportunity for the status games to over incentivize right. certain kinds of behavior. So when, you know, CEO Bob starts to voice his opinion loudly right. as the facilitator, I can say, Hey Bob, that's great, but we haven't sure. heard from Kathy and we haven't right. heard from Jane. Um, and so we're going to let them talk now and right. we're going to just ask and- you to just, Hold yeah, your like choices. Card sorting exercise. He's just the yellow cards, but there's also green cards and orange cards and pink cards, yeah. and these right. are yellow cards. So you've like yeah. you've democratized his influence in a way that yeah. you know just creates a space. And I think that like that is that's the part that always confounds me about the the like what is typically the blocking and tackling of agency sales. You know the kind of like that 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 interaction that people have. Like there's there is like a an accepted, you know, tea ceremony of sales that people all kind of adopt, you know, and mm-hmm. elements of that can include things like a proposal, or they can include, mm-hmm. you know, certain things feature in that process. Mm-hmm. And it still, it, it blows my mind that someone would try to make a decision about working with, let's say a, let's not even say web design, because that's too close to home, but let's say like, it's a brand design collaboration that they're hiring for, right? Yeah. They're going to basically hire this partner based on a proposal. That's like hiring mm-hmm. a babysitter based on how well they ride a bicycle. Or like, marrying somebody based on, you know, an arrangement. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it is this false pretext that is attempt, attempting to replace what would actually be valuable, which is like, why don't we get in a room together? I'll bring my team. You bring your team. We will yeah. 
Talk about what your problem is. We'll talk about ways we've solved that problem for other people. We'll maybe even like start to like screw around with like initial ways we might try to nibble at your problem and see what it's like to work with us and then decide yeah. if you can work with us. Don't try to decide was, if you can work with us based on a document. Totally. There was an experiment done and I know that the results vary depending on when the experience, when these experiments were done by whom, mm -hmm. but um, two strangers were brought together and they were asked to essentially interview each other using a specific set of questions. I think it's mm -hmm. called 37 questions, something like that. And they ask each other these questions and they go deep very quickly. So instead of being like, you know, how many brothers and sisters do you have? It's who in your, who in your family do you have the closest relationship with? Mm -hmm. What is the scariest thing you can imagine? Mm -hmm. um, how do you give me an example of a time when you, um, you kind of lost it? And you, mm. you you felt humiliated by your reaction, mm. and by the end of this conversation, these people actually want to go out on a date with each other, right? Because they've created intimacy. Well, it turns right. out that intimacy has got nothing to do with sex. Intimacy has got to do with conversation and relationship, and and so you can create these environments in the workplace where yeah. you can create intimacy through those deep conversations. A design sprint happens to be one version of that, but yeah. there are literally countless ways. That, as you say, you can invite your clients and your customers into a conversation. Yep. And this is why the old fashioned things like having a dinner party, yep. having a workshop environment, having any of these things, they work because yep. that's intimacy. I get to hear you, you get to hear me, we get to talk to each other in a reasonably safe space, right? Yep. This is very often a psychological space of, of equals. Mm. And we get to talk about the things that matter. Yep. And if you've got a facilitator who knows how to introduce those ideas carefully and, and consciously and you know without bias, you can create a situation where those people leave that workshop or that dinner party and they go, hey, thanks for the introduction. Mm -hmm. It's great. But we're actually really close now and we can actually continue to talk yep. about this stuff. We don't need you to sell us right. or market us. Right. We get it. Yep. We're going to talk amongst ourselves and we're going to go and figure out how yep. much of your product we want. Yep. And very often we would have these situations where at the end of a dinner party, those people would, the client who existed, in other words, mm -hmm. the, the exist, the, the current client would talk mm -hmm. to a future client and they would be the one selling to them. Right. hundred percent. And, and that I wouldn't have to do anything. And that's so much more valuable than anything you would say about yourself as someone, something someone sells on your behalf. I mean, that is like profoundly more impactful. And I think oh, yeah. the recommendation I always give in my sales consulting when I'm, so it's like kind of like in that, in that model of like there being like QBRs or some kind of review or some kind of like, you know, introspection or, or an inspection rather of like the relationship. My recommendation to people is always like get to a place where you can explain to them your goals for your business and what you're trying to achieve and what your hopes are and what your fears are. Like get vulnerable, get to a point where you're, you, you know, make where it's natural, where you can express mm -hmm. that to them. Don't be weird about it, but like get to a point where you can have that kind of conversation and be vulnerable to them. Because even if they don't return that in kind, which oftentimes people feel like a pressure to like get on that level with you, if you're being that honest with them, but even if they don't, you've made them like a shareholder in your story. You've yeah. kind of like welcomed them in as like at an investor level in what you're going to, they might not be, all on board for it. And they might not be like, you know, 
the champion of this whole thing, but at least they're aware of it and they perceive this about you and they are now, they think of it. Isn't that also, wasn't that also a filter for you? So if I tell my story to you and it resonates with you and we think that we could do something with that and we could continue our relationship, that's a filter, right? Mm -hmm. If I tell you my story and it doesn't resonate with you, that's a filter too. You might say, these guys are not for me. This is not my story. I don't, this is not, I like one of the things that I, that I used to be honest about is, I'd say to clients, look, you know, when you get to the proposal, proposaling stage or the agreement stage, very often it comes down to money, right? You have to talk about money and you have to get comfortable with that conversation. And I would say to my clients, look, we're an agency, we're a service-based company. Uh, We have to pay the people that we work with, these team members of ours, a very, very market competitive rate, because otherwise they're going to go and work for Google or Facebook or somebody else. And so these are expensive service people who are capable of doing incredibly good work in the time and budget that you've asked us to do. However, we're probably four or five months away from bankruptcy if we don't have the cash flow that we're mm-hmm. looking for. Mm-hmm. Cash flow is exactly what every service company needs. Right. Like we just don't have investors. We don't have an A round of $100 million sitting in the bank. We don't have runway. We are living in an environment that's very much like the other 27 million other small businesses in America, which is we need cash so that we can pay the people to do the kind of work that you expect from them. But we need that cash to show up quickly. So I can't give you 90 day terms or 120 day terms. I need you to pay some portion of this work up front so that we can guarantee that these people will give you your project, the attention it deserves. And that this business continues to exist and continue to build on the reputation that has attracted you to this very conversation. You are talking to me because of the reputation we've created and I need to preserve that and I need to protect that. And so you have to participate in that, that story. If that story is not interesting to you, that's great. That's fine. And that's, you know, what I try to encourage people is like adopt this attitude of like, I want to lose for the right reasons. Like that's my goal. My goal is to lose for the, if we're, you know, that, yeah. winning is great and winning is oh, obviously where we're trying, but I want to lose because they identified in me or I identified in them something that wasn't going to work. And no yeah. one's going to lose sleep over us deciding not to work together because that yeah. was just like a bridge too far. Whatever that is, if you can rule enough of those things out, then the natural byproduct is like they're saying yes for all the right reasons. Yeah. Like, I mean, that, that reminds me of something. I, I'm so glad you brought that up. It reminds me of something that used to happen, and that was when you're contracting, when you're in the contracting phase and they're getting to know each other, the dating phase of of working with a new customer, a new client. If it's a real pain in the butt to get through that contracting stage, 100% guaranteed, that's the nature of the relationship. 100%. If if the red flags are coming up in the first date, Yes. People are constantly telling you who they are. Believe them. Just believe them. They are telling you who you are. Just take them at their word. Like the people you meet in the sales process, they're on their best behavior in the sales process. They're going to be JV versions of themselves once they're like, you know, dealing with this and all the other stuff they have to deal with. Like, so if, and and I've seen this, I've seen like a Stockholm syndrome version of this in sales where (sighs) I was interviewing one of my client's clients. Why didn't you pick my client? You know, this is like, I'm doing my research. Like we loved your client. Your client was our favorite agency. We graded them the highest. It was them and one other option. But the other option, we wound up like having to go 
back and forth and back and forth and back and forth through this process. And we kind of decided like, we're getting to know them. We're kind of already like working with them. Uh, you know, we can live with this. Let's just go with the one that we're working with now, even though there's some friction here. And they said it wasn't great. It didn't turn out to be great, but they just had, they were like common law married to them after Paul's process and just stayed. And, and that is, that, that's just like, it, it, it's part of it is just people being vulnerable to their own insecurities and fear of being insecure about it. Like if, if, if like, I can count on zero hands how many clients have said to me in like a sales process, like, I don't do this very often. I'm very inexperienced at this. I've never hired somebody for this before. I'm trying like, that is, that is absolutely the opposite of what the posture is that most of these folks try to strike yeah. out of date because they're, it's, I don't do this. I mean, I, I interviewed somebody who worked at a VC, who worked with a lot of startup companies, who then as a result had worked at a product company. How many agencies have you hired in your career? Like you've worked with a lot of, you know, a lot of agencies, you work with a lot of agencies. How many have you hired? It's like, I've been doing this for 18 years. I've probably hired 10 total. Like yeah. that's a shockingly low number compared to how many yeah. times on the agency side I have pitched and I've like had these sales conferences hundreds yeah. of times a year. Yeah. So they're coming into this gunfight with a butter knife and terrified of, of exposing their insecurity or their ignorance or what they don't know about it. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, I, w I wonder whether there's a line of question that'll allow them to feel good about that insecurity or good yeah. about that vulnerability. And I think yeah. that might be worthwhile investigating is to, um, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit like, you know, I, I, I keep bringing this back to dating for some reason, but you know, it, you, maybe you haven't been on the dating scene for a while and you get back in the dating scene. But like, mm -hmm. what if you're just honest? You're like, Hey, listen, I, I haven't done this for a while. Like, I, I don't know really what I'm doing. I don't know what's changed in the last, you know, 10,000 years since I was, dating right. before and the yep. dinosaurs were still alive and right. um, before cell phones were in, invented and there was yep. things like sliding into your DMs. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Right. And and so I would love it if you could just like bear with me yeah. and, and, and maybe there's a way to invite that conversation from the other side. And, and if you're the one selling yeah. to say, I mean, we used to do this um, and I, and I can definitely give away these, some of these secrets now mm. um, at Envision was, I would go to the various parts of the world where our sales teams were based and I would meet with them and I would say, do you know what it's like to buy design software mm. as a designer, right, right. as a design leader? Right. And they'd be like, I guess so. Like, you know, I have a general idea. And I was like, what do you think they're thinking about? Yeah. How often do you think they buy software? Right. They don't. Right. How often do you think they go through the legal process or yep. the sales ops process, which involves, you know, yep. if you're in an enterprise, 100% it's going to involve some kind of security clearance and yep. some like, you know, back end audit yep. audits or something like that. How often do you think they go through that? Yep. Well, they don't. Okay. Right. Well, what do you think they're spending their time doing? Uh, designing stuff? Yeah. Okay. Right. So that's their skill set. And now you're asking them to do yep. all this other stuff. Yeah. How do you think it's going to go? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's not going to go very well. Yeah. Well, do you think that's their fault? Or do you think that's our fault for not <laughs> understanding that or bringing that sense of empathy? Yeah. Like, their goal is to assemble and, and maintain good health within their team so they can deliver great product, whatever that product is. Right? right. And that's their focus. And now you're asking them to do all these other things. Right. Can 
can we maybe change the nature of the conversation and the way that we work with them to bring in a different sense of empathy and understanding? Right. Boom. Right. Yeah. So suddenly we've got like a completely different understanding. Like you can literally feel it in the room. People going, oh, yeah. that's why my contact at that huge, big multinational bank has no clue as to like what the next step is. They keep saying things like, well, maybe you could send over another proposal. Right. Let me, let me tell you, yeah. as the person who does selling, when people say to you, send over documentation or send over a proposal or send something, whenever they ask you to send something, yeah. they're buying time right. so that they can get an understanding of what's actually going on right. because they feel completely overwhelmed by yeah. it. Yeah. If they know what they're buying, they don't say, send me over documentation. Right. Right. They say, great. What's the next step in us yeah, working yeah, together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's they're they're effectively kind of making the same request, but in under very different circumstances, right? It's effectively it feels like the next step in the process, but one is to delay and one is to get started. And I think similarly, it's also important in that same dynamic to realize, like, if this is a big enough decision, it's not typically one person making it. No. Entirely in a vacuum. So, in fact, that person is probably not the one who's going to make the ultimate decision probably. anyway. Right. Yeah. So then, then be deliberate and figure out. Okay, like I need to decode this for the person I'm talking to this way, but I know right. they're going to have a finance person if they make sense. Of. So I'm going to make a different kind of artifact or have a different kind of language around this for them to understand. That is more fluent than but, the thing. But even Joe, okay. even before that, one of the things that we as salespeople don't do very often is have that sense of empathy of what that person right. is. Do you know who the person on your finance team is right. who's going to help you do this? Right. No. Right, do you yeah. know who the person on your legal team yeah. is who's going to be dealing with this multi-million dollar contract that I'm trying to get to sign? Right. No, I've actually never met anybody on the legal team. Yep. Have you ever met anybody on your security team who's going yep. to be doing the SOC yep. test? And the, no, I don't know any of the. Okay, cool. How about we work through that together? Right. I'm sure we can map it out. Yep. Um, I've got a pretty good idea of who the roles are, but I don't know who the right. names are. Hey, can we figure those things out together? That'll also bring you some sense of like ownership as to like who yep. your team is that's going to yep. bring this together for you and make you look good. Yep. Instead of saying, okay, cool. So I'm going to send over the documentation and then good luck with that because yeah. it's just like sending it into a black hole. They were like, I, mean, I yeah. honestly don't even know where to send this. You just sent this contract for this new website or this new piece of software was no, I don't even know who to send it to. Yeah, and I, I don't think, know who, what procurement looks like yeah, in our organization. That's like one of the recommendations I make often is have like a have like a client onboarding document that you can give to people early in the sales process that enumerates with a timeline, like this is the process. This is how it goes. This to this to this to this to this. And about midway through that process, you start to earmark things like things are going to happen on their side of the equation. Like you're going to need to take this to your finance team. They're going to review that. Let's give that a week. You're going to take yeah. your legal team. They're going to want to, us to look at their MSA. Let's give that two weeks. Let's, then what this does at a minimum is it reassures them that you've done this enough, that you know what the process is, and you've gotten your reps in, yeah. and you're credible. I love that. Not for nothing. It also tells them, hey, if you're telling me you need this thing to start November 1st, I'm telling you in this document, you need to have this decision made by like right. September 15th. Because this is going to take this much time to line up to yeah. a November first start date. Because yeah. you might not know that, like your legal team is not sitting around waiting for you to give them a contract, and they'll work on no. it. Like they're dealing with something 
far more terrifying and dangerous than this contract. And you're going to wait until they're ready. And you have to be able to queue up and be ready for that. Like there's just, you're right. There's just like an education I, that is needed. I, I worked with an executive coach who used to do this thing that was so good. Whenever she took on a new client, she would tell the client essentially what the values and troughs and mm -hmm. peaks were going to look like over the coming weeks. Mm -hmm. Hey, we're going to start working together. We're going to make a great amount of progress in the first couple of weeks. Why? Because yeah. we're in the honeymoon phase. Right. We're super excited about this. You're engaged. I'm engaged. Right. And then following that, there's going to be this period where these things happen and, yeah. and you're going to lose focus. You're going to do these other things. And, and it was so funny because watching these interviews where she would tell people that they'd be like, no, it'll be fine. She's like, yeah, yeah. I've worked with hundreds of people yeah. at week six. That's when you're going to start questioning whether this is even working or not. <laughs> and you're probably going to say to your spouse, or your team or whatever, I don't know. This, yeah. this is not for me. Yeah, 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 Great. Yeah, yeah. On that date, which happens to be in this particular timeline, you know, March 8th, we're going to have a conversation about that. And here's the questions right. that we're going to talk about. It that. was so good because not only did they say, look, these are all the good things that are going to happen in that process. And maybe this is what you do as you kind of, you you're authoring these things for your clients mm -hmm. is these are the things that are going to happen that are pretty shitty. Like, right. This is when legal shows up and says, right. no ways that this thing happens. Or when finance shows up and says, yeah. we, it's not in the budget. Right. It's going to happen. Right. 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 Because that's their job. Yeah. Their CFO's job is to shut shit down. Yeah. And then yeah, there's yeah, a yeah. VP of no somewhere in the organization <laughs> who knows what part of their work for. <laughs> and they're going to shut shit down as well. You like, do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I love that though. I love, because you could, Totally do that in a product environment. You could totally do that in an agency environment. You know, like in an agency environment, say to the client, like, we're going to kick off. You're going to love us the most after the kickoff. We're going to be in the room with you. We're going to be in a honeymoon phase. This is when we're, you're going to love us the most. And we're going to have all the way up to like this initial kind of design review. And that's when we're going to be at like our Goldilocks peak moment of like mm -hmm. trust and mm -hmm. goodness. And then you're really going to be cranky with us in the last like 30 or 60 days of the project. Cause that's when you're going to be like moving all your content over and you're going to be yeah, And when the first invoices start arriving, you know what I mean? Like it's <laughs> you're able to articulate that and anticipate that shows like it's intellectually honest and it's mastery altogether. Right. It's like, yeah. I'm just telling you, this is the way this goes and all of it's okay. All of this right. is okay. And, and, and so as we kind of, I think we can bring this conversation to a close soon because one of the things that we're doing again is we're bringing it back to this point, which is, do you want to do the work to build a relationship? Right. Because when you choose to do the work in a relationship, you show up warts and all and have the hard conversations. Right. Oh, this is who I am. This is what I'm good at. This is what I'm not good at. These are the things that I'm still working on. These are the things that are going to be scary. Here's the timeline of what's going to happen in terms of like our evolving relationship. I'm, I'm telling you right now that things aren't going to be great in six yep. weeks time. That's okay. I'm willing to work through it if you are. Yep. Great. Yep. Cool. Let's move forward. Yep. I think the work that we're talking about involved in creating relationships is no different in any connection point or handoff point in any organization. So whether you're talking about sales or marketing or sales and PM or, you know, the project manager, the, the product manager and their team of engineers and designers and developers, those all those handoffs require work and if you really want to be a good leader and a good manager and a good team member it requires you to have those kinds of conversations to have the hard conversations that 
you know, the choices that you make about where you spend your time. Yeah. And that's uncomfortable for a lot of people because we're not all skilled at this. This is not a, you know, pop out of the womb with a set of skills type of stuff. This right. is learned, experienced things yeah. that come with fucking out and fucking around and finding out. Like yeah. you have to experiment. You have to try yeah. some stuff. Not everything's going to work with every team and you're going to have right. to try it more than once. Right. And I think that's the point that we're trying to make is if it is true that we don't know how to work with each other, it's because we're not putting in the work of work. Right? Work is not working because we're not working at it. Oh my God, that's a mouthful. But yeah, that'll be the tagline. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't agree more. And So I think, yeah, I could do this obviously for the next three hours, but we need to make this you know, consumable by other people who can then go live their life. Yeah. <laughs> You've actually got to go to work. Yeah, exactly. And do some things. All right. So let's wrap it up for now. And then we'll, we'll re-engage soon. Yeah.